Dr. George McGinnis is the academic director of the Benaki Museum in Athens, Greece. He holds a PhD in archaeology and history of art. He has taught Byzantine, Islamic, and Chinese art history at the University of London, both at SOAS and the Courtauld Institute, and elsewhere. He has excavated in Greece, Cyprus, and Egypt, and has worked for the Hellenic Children's Museum and the Archaeological Museum of Ioannina. He has also acted as museum development consultant in the United Kingdom. Uh, Dr. George McGuinness, uh, welcome to the creative process. Uh, we're in the Benaki Museum, and you've been here how long? I have been here since December 2016. But I started working in one capacity or the other as a consultant, as a researcher for the museum since 2010. And of course, like most Greek archaeologists, that's what I am, an archaeologist, I have known and have frequented the museum since I was really young. So it is one of the uh, major museums in Greece. And uh, so it's inevitable that you, at some point in your uh, academic life, gravitate towards the Benaki. Yes, and it's quite uh, a unique collection. Just tell us a little about the history. Yes, well, it was founded in 1930 and it opened to the public in 1931. It's a very unusual museum by Greek standards in that it is... It bears the name of its founder, a Mr. Benakis. Adonis Benakis was an expatriate Greek. He was born and grew up in Alexandria, Egypt, and he belonged to the greater Greek diaspora, which is not an unusual phenomenon. And his father was in cotton trading, and so was Adonis himself. The family was uh, fairly well off, but also had the benefactor bug in them, so they always kept a close uh, relationship with the mother country, with Greece. The father gifted uh, schools and uh, charity foundations. The son gifted art. So when they came back in the 20s, they brought back their family collection. And when the father died in 29, Andonis, with his siblings, decided to donate the family home, which is the building we're in, and all the collections to the Greek nation. What is unusual, however, by Greek standards is that instead of letting the management to the Greek state, they constituted a foundation, and so the Benaki is the only national museum in Greece that is governed under private law. So there is a foundation with a board of trustees, and this manages the museum. However, the collection and the buildings, and I, I put that in the plural because it is a network of museums rather than a single museum building, belong to the nation. They are state property. Yeah. which is a bit like the British Museum, for example. I mean, that, yeah. that's a sort of uh, parallel uh, arrangement. Uh, now, the uh, museum was pretty much within the same premises until the, the end of the 20th century. 
And then, during the first decade of the 21st century, a series of annexes of satellite museums started opening. And this reflected the diversity of the collections, because the Benaki is the only museum in Greece that has a lot of collections that are not simply Greek. Yes. Most other Greek museums have incredible collections of Greek art, but with one exception, the Museum of Asian Art in Corfu, they have nothing else. Yeah. Whereas the Benaki, from start, from its core collection, included magnificent collection of Islamic art, which was Benaki's own private collection, a collection of Greek art, of course, but also a collection of Chinese art, which was given by an expatriate Greek from London, George Eumorphopoulos. So these were the three original collections, and then further collections, uh, a Korean, a small, very small Korean collection, pre-Columbian American collection, an African collection, have been added. And this has somehow to be reflected uh, on the footprint of the museum upon the Athenian landscape, not to mention how many Greek collections have been accumulated since. So during the first decade of the 21st century, and even in this decade, the museum has been expanding, and now we have, well, six museum buildings, Kunsthalle is a huge exhibition center towards Paris, archives, even a silk manufactory. And they all operate under the Benaki auspices. They are part of the Benaki network. A total of 10 buildings open to the public. So there's an element of contemporary art? Yes, there is. Now, if we are... Uh, to use a few words to characterize the Benaki, we can say it is the only museum in the world that presents Greek culture from prehistory to the 21st century and culture seen holistically. So not just fine art, but also applied arts and historical documents, literature, photography, and architecture. It's a very inclusive perception of art, but also in relation to global art, to world art and world cultures. Uh, in that sense, contemporary art is part of a remit. We do not yet have an active collecting policy for contemporary art. We do have a small collection, but has been, it has been haphazardly accumulated through the exhibitions and through the different activities that the museum has done. But we have, for, for decades now, filled in a gap uh, in the Athenian art scene, and that is the gap of a contemporary art museum. Yeah, that, I guess there's one just opening in June, but it's, it's like... Uh, yes. It? <laughs> yes, we've been waiting for it for years, and it is, it is something we really look forward to. Yeah. There's, a, there's a, a grand building which is assigned to the Museum of Contemporary Art. Exhibitions have happened there, but the permanent collection hasn't yet been exhibited. Yes. And at this point in time, also the National Gallery, which focuses on 18th, 19th and 20th century Greek art, is being refurbished. Yeah. So, I mean, this dual 
gap, absence mm-hmm. in the yes. cultural scene has been filled by the Benaki. Mm-hmm. Uh, first of all, because many artists of, pre- of older generations, from the 50s, 60s, 70s generations, were growing old. They had to have their retrospectives, they had to have their definitive catalogues and publications, and someone had to do it. So the Benaki stepped into the shoes and has done a lot of that. But also because, um, especially 20th century Greek art, not so much contemporary, focused very much on Greek tradition and the relationship with Greek history, which is a huge burden and also a huge treasure mm-hmm. on the shoulders of Greeks. So, and the Benarch is being a diachronic museum, mm-hmm. had to cover that. We had to address, we had to study. So, you see these books mm-hmm. on the bookcase over there, from the second column onwards, this is basically contemporary artists or modern artists mm-hmm. uh, exhibited at the museum. Oh, that's so, it's only the first yeah. column that has our collections. Oh, so it's really extensive. So we're looking at a, a fifth, of, sorry, four fifths of, of the having contemporary exhibitions. Yes. I think it's really important how we learn from the past and we bring it forward. Otherwise, maybe we're not learning, we're st- stuck in the past. Exactly. And so that's that's part of the Benaki mission. And also, these are all publications by the Benaki. Yeah. So the, the museum operates as a cultural institution, more like an exhibiting uh, institution. So we publish books, more than 500 volumes so far. We do educational programs, that's not unusual for museums in this day and age. We have research facilities for different archives. One on photography, which is the largest in Greece. One on historical documents. One on modern Greek architecture, again, unique actually, rather than the biggest, and one on performance arts, dance, theatre, opera, etc. And documenting the, the, the output, the creative output of modern Greece from the roughly the 17th century onwards. It's really beautiful. So one uh, aspect of the museum are you most proud of? Or if you could talk about the key works that you feel are really important for visitors. Well, yes, that's a very good question. It's so wide. What really sets the Benaki apart are two things. First of all, it's a museum which is connected to society. Mm-hmm. And it's a loved museum. And this is because, it's, even if you think about it, you enter the museum, it's, it feels like a home. Yes. It's a house. Mm-hmm. Okay, it's been extensively refurbished, it's, you know, it's got a, a ticket desk and a coat check, but in reality it still is a house, the central building. Mm-hmm. And we try to do that pretty much in every building. There's a homely atmosphere. And it is a museum which has the biggest revisit rate in the country. So people come back to the Benaki. It is a regular visit for Greeks. It's not just for tourists, like many other museums are. And this has been worn over the years by being open, by doing a lot of, by having a free day every week for this one, for the Museum of Greek Culture, by uh, doing hundreds of events every year, and by bringing all 
sorts of groups of people here. Mm. So there are special pioneer actually programs for people with impaired vision. This is a museum which was really groundbreaking in bringing people with movement problems and with learning disabilities, mm. refugees in the recent years and all sorts of social groups. But also we cater to the elderly, mm -hmm. we cater to um, everybody that bothers to walk through our door and we will find a way to make that easier. So we are very proud mm -hmm. of this social profile. Mm -hmm. And the other thing I may have hinted at that we are very proud of is our cosmopolitan character. Oh, yes. Yes, our collections which go beyond the Greek world. However, as this deployment scheme was being unfolded yeah. during the second decade of the century, the financial crisis came. Mm -hmm. So our growth was stunted yes. by this. So for, for now, only the Islamic art collection has a permanent home, the Museum of Islamic Art, right. which is... Uh, a star collection. If you study Islamic art, you know the Benaki. It's, it's one of these seminal collections in the Western world. But we also have our Chinese collection, our African collection, our uh, pre-Columbian American collection. And when, when all these will be deployed, we will have a truly encyclopedic museum which will be of great benefit to people in this country but also globally. As the, the travelling exhibitions? As travelling exhibitions and also as web collections because yeah. nowadays most people if they cannot travel it's easier than before but still yeah. it's an expensive exercise they can click uh, on our website and they can find pretty much the whole entire Chinese collection and mm -hmm. a large part of the other collections nicely photographed and sort of quickly catalogued so that they have access to them. Mm -hmm. And this sort of openness and the cosmopolitanism is part of our remit. And it's also a political choice, you see. In a day and age when frontiers have been sort of built more and more and we all talk about stopping movement and we're afraid of this globalization. A museum has to go the other way. A museum has to stress that culture has never had frontiers or passports yes. forever. It was yes. the hardest currency humanity has ever had and we have to use it. And I, it's an interesting description, the hardest currency <laughs> the world has ever had. Yes, in terms of each, it, it, each has an interesting value. It's, it's very expensive, but you must make it by your hand. Yes. Yeah. So I, I do like the, how that reflects on the Benaki family and their internationalism. And in terms of going into your educational initiatives, are you inviting creative responses to the work? Or are you engaging with academics? Or how is that? In every possible way. Okay, the, first of all, the Benaki has always been the most open museum in this country, and by the standards of many other countries as well, towards research. Whereas other museums may take months or even years to answer to a request for access to material, we tend to do it 
instantly. Right. And we, uh, are, we welcome young scholars to study the collections and really what we want is to publish as much, uh, exhibit as much as possible, that's not very easy, publishing is a bit easier, yeah. uh, and get things out there in the public sphere. Mm-hmm. So, uh, and also we encourage new research and sometimes even groundbreaking research and controversial research. We, you know, uh, things have symposia and studies have been published which are actually classic or seminal in their respective fields. So that is with regards to research, with regards to creative responses to at least the things that we can give access to. We have done it on multiple levels, on the level of uh, contemporary art, and we encourage dialogue with our collections. And we do it either in dedicated exhibitions within exhibition spaces in our museums or in the Piraeus 138 building, the Kunsthalle building, the temporary exhibitions facility, or we do it by incorporating contemporary work within the museums, within the permanent collections of the museums, in immediate dialogue with works of art. And in that we work with foundations like the Deste Foundation of Dakis Joannou or the Neon Foundation, the Neon Foundation. These are Greek contemporary art initiatives in Greece that do a sterling work promoting uh, the contemporary art scene. And, and so this is contemporary fine art, but also in the realm of applied arts, the Benaki has one of the best museum shops in the world and I'm very proud for that to say that because we've had this comment from colleagues running very big museum shops internationally and what they said is that the quality that the Benaki offers we can be a boutique museum shop we it's not a mass products shop but that is achieved by using Greek artisans and the creative forces of the country. So, potters, metal workers, jewellery makers, weavers, um, uh, embroiderers, um, printers have access to the collection and they're invited to work either copying or interpreting creatively our collections and producing things which we do not just exhibit, but we actually give them an outlet for selling them. Right. Yes. So we, we give them, we enable them to survive. We promote this creative aspect, and that is very important. Yeah, I haven't, I haven't really come across. I mean, I know there've been some things, but I haven't really come across that on the scale you, you mentioned, and on the level of handmade artisanship, because that must, you know, people who um, visit your gift shop feel that they're really supporting Greek artisans, Greek artists. It, About two hundred yeah. of them. We count. You know, wow. the latest count is we have two hundred different. Artists artisans that stock more than 3,000 product codes. 
Okay. Because people want to take the art home with them. They really exactly. want that. And in the museum shops, sometimes there's, I'm just talking about it generally, yeah, it's en masse. It's made often, in not in the country where the museum is. And it might be clever or whatever, but it also feels often plastic. Or, plastic, yeah, yeah. yes. It's not a cheap museum shop, although yeah. we try to have something for everybody. Yeah. But the quality is consistently high and it's also unique. Yeah. We have people that come from faraway countries and stock up here. Yeah. And in that sense, it's very good we've got now a web shop. Mm -hmm. uh, so you can buy on the, uh, online as well. Mm -hmm. And in that, the silk manufacturer helps us a lot. Transportable. Very transportable. We, this was one of the oldest businesses in Greece. Uh, it's a passementerie factory. Passementerie is braids, ribbons, tassels, uh, Brandenburgs. It's all these sort of things that decorate clothes or interiors. Everything that you can make out of silk, but we also use organic cotton and other fibers. And this was really old. It was called Mentis. And it was closing down a few years ago, so the Benaki stepped in, and thanks to a generous donor, the people were re-employed by the museum, wow. the machinery was refurbished, and the whole machine was set up back in motion. And of course we had to diversify and follow the time, so we now produced for high-end fashion designers. And especially in this country and we also do things for our shop mm -hmm. so our Christmas uh, baubles mm -hmm. are silk mm -hmm. our Easter eggs are silk mm -hmm. and because we we own the manufacturing, the cost is lower. Yeah, but the quality is still but high. But the quality is still high. And we have saved a part of the intangible cultural heritage of the country yeah. because it was the last working as such manufacturer in the country. Well, that, that's so beautiful. So yeah, it's 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 nice because it's it's going it's going forward. It's preserving, and, and at the same time, and let's just talk about some of those. I, re I really like that. But just going back to the creative responses, because there's artistic creative responses, and we're working with you know art schools, and I, I get submissions also of writing. So ekphrastic mm -hmm. uh, writing could be interesting in response to some of your artworks. Hmm. Yeah. Again, here we have something. You have something for you, and yes, we're doing it. Yes. We're, we haven't started yet. Um. We actually have a residency center, oh. which is not just any residency center. It is one of the most beautiful houses in the Mediterranean. It is the, the house of Patrick Lee Fermer, oh. the travel author, yes. and his photographer wife Joan. And they built this beautiful house in southwest Greece, in the Peloponnese. Oh. And as they had no children, they were uh, anxious to see... Uh, I'll just show you a very simple photograph here, but it doesn't do it justice. It's one of the most beautiful buildings. It's oh. on the sea. What we're looking at this building is uh, just describe that there. What it's like a it's a compound. Would you say? Yes, yeah. I mean it's an L-shaped yeah. uh, house with some outbuildings, and it sits on a beach. Uh -huh. It's got its own private little beach, 
drowned in jasmine and all sorts of beautiful plants. If you can't be inspired there, where can you yes. be inspired? And yeah. part of the part of the will um. of the Lee farmers was to make it available to scholars mm. and writers mm. for short residences or longer residences, mm. anything from three weeks to a month and a half. Mm-hmm. for people to visit and have the time to respond to the landscape and to grid culture. And of course, we would like also to focus on people responding to the breadth of our collections. Yes. Although it's not near, it doesn't matter. They can, we they can, can always arrange them. for them. We can always arrange for them visits in Athens and then they can take the car down to Carthamili to where this is. So this is this hasn't started yet. Right. The, I'm going actually in a few days to see it because we got a very generous funding from the Stavros Nyakos Foundation, and so we finished the refurbishment and it will be open to the public for visits, isolated visits, this summer and from fall. 2019, we will slowly start getting fellows in. Mm-hmm. So that will be a, a different sort of creative response on paper. Wow. So I, I would love, and if you like, we, we, if you want, wish, we can share some of your artworks, uh, okay. your collection, and get, because often people are like poets or pair them maybe um, with some kind of um, writing that we have. Is that Okay. If you like. So if we are to focus on a few objects, and we can have a look at them upstairs, but you know, it's yes. sometimes yeah. easier to do it yeah. um, uh, on a book. I would single out a small treasure from central Greece of metal objects, two of them in gold, one in silver. Uh, the deep bowls, this is one of them, and they date from the fourth millennium BC. So they are really old. And there are not that many around the world. And they show very early the potential, very early potential for accumulation of wealth, which of course shows complex society. The ability to accumulate wealth and to they were so well preserved that they were obviously burial objects. So, in order to bury someone with such an expensive and rare object, it means that they were very important, they were very powerful. In order to have such power and importance at such an early stage, it means that you have a complex society that can elevate uh, individuals to that point. So, this is already evidence of a very early social stratification. It's so fascinating how one object can tell you about a whole culture and society, how you draw all these stories from that. Yes. It is. And that, the most, the most common example of this, of course, is what objects can tell you about contacts with other cultures. Yes. Yeah, this is an even more uh, striking example. And, for example, when you get the famous monsters or composite creatures of Greek mythology like the Sphinx or the Centaur, the Sphinx which is basically a lion with wings and a a woman's head or a centaur who is half horse, half male, uh, human male. Um, And these complex creatures come from the east 
they originate in ancient Iran and the Middle East. But we, are so, we, we think they're very Greek, of course. But there was a point in the 8th century BC when the Greeks uh, left their homelands and expanded eastwards towards what is today Turkey, creating colonies, peaceful colonies, trading colonies, and bringing in back into their homelands, sending back into their homelands works of art, but also images and ideas that were prevalent in the powerful kingdoms of the Near East. Mm. And in that way, in sort of injecting Greek culture with these powerful figures of mm. mythical creatures that went into Greek mythology and are so familiar to us through Greek mythology. Mm. So that is another very fascinating aspect of small objects that can sort of tell you a lot about history and the past. And of course, when we get into uh, a more explicit, explicit in the sense of more open iconography like classical Greek art, which is full of images, it's full of people uh, and doing things and behaving and exchanging uh, glances, uh, then you know, it's much easier, it's an easier game. History is not that easy, but when you go into the classical world, for example, in this grave stele, a grave marker from the fourth century, a monumental piece, and what you see here is, it looks very calm, mm -hmm. very gentle, but actually it's a very sad moment, because they stood on the grave and of a woman, and you can see her sitting, and when you see someone sitting in such a, a stele, usually it's the deceased. And she's also bigger than the others. You see how large she is. So she's already in a different scale because she's in a different world. And what she does, she's shaking hands. And it's not saying hello, it's saying goodbye. And the person she's shaking hands with, and this is a formula, you see it in every uh, burial um, monument, is the closest relative. Usually the husband or the brother or a parent. And between them, there's very often another relative. And behind her, this is usually her servant, a slave, mm -hmm. was also beloved. So went, I mean, you know, a bit at the mm -hmm. corner, a bit as an afterthought, but also went into the scene. So here you have on a quite, of course, an a good, quite an open work of art you have as seen from everyday life, mm. which is very touching. No, it's it's so moving, and the the way you read it, you know, it's I don't think if people have forgotten, people who aren't archaeologists or aren't art historians have forgotten how to read objects, sculptures, paintings like that. And I like this, as you said, the servant. That that just you don't always see that with the servant. No, no that's unusual. It's beautiful because it's like whispering in her ear. Mm-hmm. And very often there's a famous one in the National Archaeological Museum where a servant presents a box of jewellery to her mistress to pick something out yeah. to wear. It's just, yeah, as you say, it just, it's so telling of these complex relationships. Of people. Yeah. Yes, but they, you know, you can, you can also read it as evidence for architecture. Yes. You can read it as evidence for furniture design, uh -huh. for clothing. 
yeah. uh, you can appreciate the quality of the carving mm -hmm. and there's even better ones than this you know mm -hmm. so you can appreciate the way the shapes are depicted the anatomy of the people the hairdress there's a lot of ways to look at it you can look at the material you, uh, or you can look at the where the ideas come from and then jewelry okay this is quite a glamorous pair of earrings they're actually smaller than you see them so let's say two, two yes. and a half inches they are really incredibly to get that delicate. level of detail if we describe that but again these beautiful objects which you can see as personal adornments and works of craft and fantastic feats of technology can be read in different ways now these data as you can see from the late 4th century BC and what happens in the Greek world at that time is of course Alexander the Great okay. Alexander the Great king of uh, the kingdom of Macedon used the political stability created by his father Philip in the Greek world to enable himself to pursue aggressive policy, basically an invasion of the greatest empire the world had seen so far, the Persian Empire. So the Persians, traditional enemies of the Greeks, usually the big guys, were now receding and they were eventually defeated. So the period of Alexander the Great brought to Greece, through this vast kingdom he created, extending all the way to India, untold wealth. When Alexander sacked Persepolis, he took 3,000 camel loads of gold and silver. Oh. It's an unbelievable <laughs> number, because a camel can actually carry quite a lot of weight. So this Hellenistic world, the world after Alexander the Great, was suddenly incredibly rich, politically powerful, and had access to techniques which were not available before in the Greek world, and materials which were up to then unbelievably exotic and strange. And now we, we, we could have them. And for example, you get a color on jewelry. So you may think it's just a statement of fashion, but actually to have amethysts and turquoise. Mm. They had not been, yes. These came from the East. Oh. Turquoise came from Iran, um, pearls came from the Gulf, oh. sapphires came from India. So suddenly this colour that you see mm -hmm. in Hellenistic and Roman and uh, late Roman jewellery, mm -hmm. this is testament to this expanded world view of the Greeks achieved through the campaigns of Alexander. It's lovely to have all that written in your jewelry because we, we don't, well, with those who don't study it, don't think you just think of it as an ornament, not as a testament to history. And so then, of course, in this, in the, the Roman world, which takes up, it takes after the Hellenistic world of Alexander's heirs. Um, um, various traditions are married, and this is a superb example of what is often termed a Fayum portrait. Fayum is a city in Egypt, and there the ancient tradition of mummification continued into the Roman period. And uh, so this is approximately 1st century or early 2nd century AD, we're now in um, the modern era, in the AD years. And, 
Um, people, instead of having a sort of standard mummy mask, commissioned really good portraits, fairly realistic portraits of Look themselves. at the expression in the eyes and the mouth. Yes, yeah. and even the wrinkles on the neck. Here we, yeah. you don't have an idealized portrait, yeah. but you have almost a snapshot of someone, uh-huh. probably commissioned while they were young, yeah. uh, in order to be used in their co- on their coffin. Right. And th- we have evidence that these coffins with the mummified body were kept in the houses of people for a long time after their death because uh-huh. the mummified body of course was preserved uh-huh. very well so their their physical presence and also their image their their portrait lived with their loved ones in the house as if they were still present so that's why it's, it was made in such a, a direct, immediate way. It was painted so lifelike in order to communicate their presence even after they were dead, at the height of their powers. And you yes. can see he's painted on cloth, using uh, encaustic, using wax colors. And the preservation is incredible if you think how delicate it is. And this is the lady, and she's mm-hmm. holding the Egyptian Amr, which is the symbol of life, yes. although this is a funeral portrait. And hers is perhaps a little more, not idealized, but less uh, yes. nuanced, maybe, yes. It's, yes. But it's beautiful with it because it's a full body. But these were sat on the actual coffin. I mean, they, they mm-hmm. sat on this sarcophagus. But it's a lovely thing to be able to, to have someone still with you through their portrait when they've gone. Yes. It's so strange looking at these old portraits and you can imagine yourself back there. And, I mean, what do you feel when you look at this? I feel like he's questioning me. Mm. You know, he's looking at me, he's trying to ask a question. Yes. Also, I mean, it's strange, but this seems... He's like accusing or something. There's something... (laughs) I feel like I did him a wrong. He's quite stern, isn't he? (laughs) Yes. I really feel like I did him some... I don't know, there's this, this complicated sadness. It's very well done. It's a beautiful work. Yes. And um, we have three of those. Yes. You know, but he's the best known, actually. Uh-huh. But there's also a lady uh-huh. holding a symbol of immortality, the Ankh, the symbol of life. Uh-huh. Um, and then we go into the Christian era. And the Christian era is basically the, the so-called Byzantine period. Byzantium is a misnomer. It's really the Christian Empire of Constantinople, Roman Empire of Constantinople. This is the proper name, Byzantium. Oh, okay. So, uh, you know, modern Greeks call themselves Romni, which means Romans, okay. because Byzantines were Romans. Yeah. So, in this stage, it's not, I wouldn't call it a medieval culture, it's a culture which is imbued with aspects of religion, of the Christian religion, but it is also an art which often has highly classical feelings to it, you know, it it harks back to Greek tradition of classical and Hellenistic age, so you see ideas of beauty continue, this is not a medieval, ugly, sort of stern, emaciated time for uh, the human figure. This angel is a particularly beautiful angel, wrapped in his uh, incredible youth. And Byzantium was a very long period in Greek art and Greek life, Greek culture, lasted for a thousand years. And 
Perhaps the most famous output of Byzantine art is icons. Panels of wood painted with a restrained palette of colors in highly charged, very powerful scenes taken from the Holy Scripture. And this is the hospitality of Abraham from the Old Testament. I don't know if you're familiar with the story, Abraham, the old man with the black clothes here, was married to Sarah. And he was a Jewish patriarch, a powerful man, but they had no children. And they were very, very old, so they had abandoned all hope. And you can see them here almost mourning for their uh, um, misfortune. And one day, this kindly old man comes across three young men in the city market, and they are foreign, and they are strangers, and he invites them for dinner at his house, because that's, you know, what a... Uh, a decent person would do and uh, he offers these young men um, a great meal with his uh, wife and the three men are actually angels of God and they tell him that he will have a son to which of course Abraham and Sarah laugh because you know, at their age they're sort of 100, no, 800 years old or something uh, <laughs> they, they do not expect it but of course a child comes and this child is part of uh, Christ's genealogy. So Abraham is a very, you know, is connected to that. But also, the three angels symbolize the Holy Trinity, of which is a Christian dogma, quite a difficult idea for most people to perceive. You know that God is one and three at the same time. And uh, so this is an icon which has a very strong symbolic and religious meaning, but also look at it, it's one of the most beautiful and restrained works you can have of supreme elegance. If you move it far away, what you see is a perfect harmony of colour. Yes, this is almost a choreography as well, with the, the arrangement of figures. Yes, mm. it's a very elegant form. Mm -hmm. And with Byzantine art, which is of course all, it's uh, the finest Byzantine art we have is usually religious. There is a lot of secular art as well but nothing like how much religious art we have. Mm -hmm. And the finest tends to be church art. Mm -hmm. Icons definitely are religious art. And this religious art stresses of course the afterlife and the religious aspect of life, of living, even on the, in this world. So what is important is not what you see, but that which you cannot see. In that sense, this art is a highly intellectual form of art, which is based on concepts rather than the bodily sort of reaction to the image. Yeah. An icon is not a window to, that tries to deceive you that you're looking out to, onto an actual landscape or onto an actual scene. It is actually a key to unlock the meaning of the landscape or the scene. What I'm saying is that it doesn't look real. It looks true. Yes. And that's why Byzantine art is so popular with modern artists. Because a modern artist doesn't try to do to paint a photograph mm -hmm. of the world. A modern artist tries to explain the world, to give you the meaning of what 
is depicted. Yeah. In that sense, it was Byzantine art, an icon like this, was not popular until the 19th century when art was focused on the depiction of reality. But it became suddenly very popular in the early 20th century when artists started focusing on different aspects of the world, mm. or on what goes, or what is beyond the image. Yeah, how, how we feel the world. How we feel the world, how we explain, how we perceive the world. Mm. And perhaps the most valuable uh, icon, we have, we have two very valuable icons at the museum, only one is in the catalogue. One looks like an icon, you know, so it looks very Byzantine, very sort of strict, and the other one looks like an Italian painting. You know, so it's got illusionistic, it's adoration of the kings, so it's got an illusionistic ruin here, and everybody's painted as if you're looking at a photograph. So it's got this, it's got perspective, it's got all the attributes of Renaissance art. But both icons were painted by the same person, at approximately the same time, in the same, within the same decade. Oh. Which tells us that an artist could do either or according to the patron or the fashion. Yeah. This painter was born in Crete and then moved to Italy and eventually yeah. went to Spain. Yeah. And he's much better known as, a, rather than Dominicus Theotokopoulos, which was his original name, he's known as El Greco. And El Greco was a painter who infused with this Byzantine spirituality mm -hmm. the Renaissance art. Right. He was an oddity until the early 20th century when exactly this quality of his art became very important. Because it was an art that went beyond the visible. Oh, his beautiful distortions. That is, it is an ascension. Oof. Yes, exactly. But you know his distortions are not a personal triumph, they originate from a tradition mm -hmm. in which he was born and schooled mm -hmm. back in his homeland, which was a Greek homeland. Yes. So we are, if we're talking about treasures, are two El Grecos, mm -hmm. there are two of the three early Grecos in existence. Mm -hmm. So yeah. this is a very valuable thing to yeah. have in the museum. I'm Pearson Brown, a student at American University. I'm currently majoring in an interdisciplinary degree that combines communications, law, economics, and government. In addition, I am minoring in art history and pursuing an advanced leadership studies certificate. With the creative process, I am an associate podcast producer, focusing on curation, museum education, and sustainability. Listening to Dr. McGinnis discuss the role of Byzantine icons in influencing modern artists, especially in Greece, I was struck by the idea of a particularly common theme in history, what's old is new again. This rings especially true as our days blur together during the COVID-19 pandemic, but I think it can appear in surprising places as well. For example, thinking of how both Byzantine and modern artists wanted to create not something real in the physical sense, but something true to the human experience. As both participants here agree, the goal here is to explain how we feel the world, not how we see it. Although my studies have particularly focused on American and Western European artists, I have found similarities between this idea 
and the abstract expressionist artists of the 1950s and 60s in New York City. Art, in this sense, is not something that simply records history, but it records a feeling and is able to incite that feeling each time it is viewed within each new viewer. As Dr. McGinnis continues to discuss Greek history, the Benaki collection, and the role of museums in the present day, I found this theme to pop up again and again. Experiencing art physically in a museum space beyond online is a full-body experience that goes beyond what a book or a description can provide. It evokes that kind of deep emotion and inspires creativity in all fields, not just the creative. It is this that sparks innovation and change, while it also seems to reflect the past and reflects our history. So, perhaps it's always going to be true. What's old is always new again. If you're just joining us, we're talking with George McGinnis, Academic Director at the Benaki Museum in Athens. And then we go into the early modern Greek collection, which is the best in the world, basically. Yeah. Uh, and spans the 16th, 18th, uh, 17th, 18th, and 19th centuries. Here, interestingly, the focus moves away from the works of the great artists, you know, fine art, and goes into aspects of art which we tend to consider decorative or lesser in the canon. For example, embroidery. Because women were involved exactly, in the production. Because women did them. <laughs> and you got exactly my point. For example, these unbelievable, unbelievable embroideries. The famous wedding bed from Rhodes, which is four meters tall mm. and was probably used a few days every decade or if at all. It was unpacked for the wedding and then repacked. So that's why it's in beautiful shape. Wonderful. And, uh, vibrant yes. colors even going back all these years, you know? Yes, it's, it's an 18th century bed. Yeah. And also, you know, all sorts of images from Greek life and a spectacular collection of costume. But again, because this was the woman's realm. However, when icon painting became sort of fossilized after the 16th century, this art was incredibly creative and vibrant down to the 19th century. And the founder of the museum, Benakis, was one of the earliest collectors of this art. Uh, well, again, speaking about things that tell us so much about the lives that people lived, I mean, the jewellery, the clothing that they wore every day, so many clues. I had heard accounts where it was possible to amass large um, textile collections because, I guess, the furniture, the solid objects were auctioned, but often the yes. textiles were burned. It seems like such a loss. It's a huge loss. Mm-hmm. And these things, you see, they were treasured until a cultural change made them irrelevant. Mm-hmm. So, uh, for example, the huge change in everyday dress in the early 20th century in Greece when women moved from this to yeah. European-style clothing, you know, yeah. and then the fashion was for... My great-grandmother was married on traditional costume. Mm-hmm. My grandmother was married with a taffeta dress. Mm-hmm. So within one generation, my great-grandmother's clothes became irrelevant. Mm-hmm. 
And so they were, at least there were people like Benakis who gathered them, yeah. those that were not destroyed. Mm -hmm. And so the collection actually is, goes on and on and on and includes two magnificent room, reception rooms from North Greece following the late Ottoman decorative tradition, late Ottoman taste, and with lots of color and a lot of gold and stained glass, etc., etc. Yeah. They are dazzling, they are absolutely dazzling. And this collection has been a source of inspiration for major uh, Contemporary fashion, fashion yes. designers, yes. And in 2017, we had an actual fashion show mm -hmm. here on this floor oh. by Jean-Paul Gaultier, oh, yes. and he did a retrospective. Mm -hmm. So he gathered, it wasn't a new collection, he gathered about 40, 40 outfits from all his collections, mm -hmm. going back 25 years, mm -hmm. and he brought them to Athens, mm -hmm. and for one night, we had a big show. This wonderful, it's a wonderful tribute to yeah, Because he said, I always loved the Benaki and I always sought inspiration from it. But also Galliano and McQueen. Oh. The jewelry collection, the modern jewelry collection from mostly the 18th and 19th centuries is stunning. We have two rooms of it and still we exhibit very little compared to what we've got. Mm -hmm. And I always uh, talk about the most famous dynasty of Greek origin jewelers uh, who are still active, the Bulgari. Oh, yes. Who mm -hmm. come from a small village in northwest Greece. Mm -hmm. And they, one of the Bulgaris moved to Italy in the 19th century, and the rest is history. But jewellery is a highly symbolic form. This belt, for example, is a, a wedding belt from Thrace, from the area sort of west of Constantinople, uh, of Istanbul. And uh, it was given by the future husband, by, you know, the, uh, the fiancé to his uh, future bride. And it's got enamel and sometimes coral or not particularly valuable gems and very often you see not in this case you see the date of the wedding or the initials of the soon-to-be newlyweds so this is uh, something you know documenting a moment in life so it's jewelry like a wedding ring basically instead of having a wedding ring you have a wedding belt which actually a woman wears basically covering her womb. So it's a much more appropriate uh, place to have a, a wedding piece of jewellery. Yes. And very often they consist of two roundels, the belts, which look like two breasts. Uh, so they have a very strong association with motherhood, bearing children and breastfeeding them and being fertile and having a good family. And maybe that is the symbolic child. <laughs> yes, <laughs> almost in the middle. And there, there, there are some enormous ones, indeed. And then, of course, going into Greek history, you know, Greece from the 15th century, most of Greece from the 15th century until the 19th century, was uh, part of the Ottoman Empire. And at the beginning, it wasn't a particularly difficult situation, but as the Ottoman Empire sort of started to fall apart, financially things were tough, and also the Greeks developed a very strong sense of identity, 
strengthened, no less, by Western tourists that came to Greece and were surprised to find these noble Greeks, you know, the, the heirs to the Greek heritage, to the classical world, enslaved to the Muslim Ottoman Turks. And also the Greeks themselves, they, they wanted freedom, they wanted to have their own nation-state, which didn't exist before that. The first nation-state called Greece, the first state ever called, alas, Greece, which alas is the proper name of the country, was created in 1830. Yes, and nobody knows that, because before that, you know, in prehistory you had the various kingdoms of prehistory, then you had city-states like Athens, Sparta, Corinth, Thebes, Mm -hmm. then you had Philip and Alexander, which was the kingdom of Macedon, and the heirs, which had different names, and then the Romans, and then the Eastern Roman Empire, Byzantium, and then the Ottoman Empire. A state as such called, alas, Greece, appeared on the horizon in 1830. So it's a very interesting concept. Yeah, and I don't know how all the separate regions, how long it took, because you can call a country a country, but how long it took for them to also psychologically join. Oh, by the 18th century, there was a very strong sense of identity among the Greeks, structured along basically two linchpins. One was language, and that had existed for three and a half thousand years at least. So it was a very strong bond between the different uh, communities that were culturally quite diverse. I mean, from uh, almost Syria, some of the Greeks lived in the far reaches, you know, the Kurdistan, basically, all the way to South Italy. So the the Greeks covered a huge geographic area. They were united by language and they were united by Orthodox uh, Christian beliefs. So they were Greek, they were Greek Orthodox Christians. And the church was quite powerful in that. And of course within the Ottoman part of this area, the church also had political and judicial power. Uh, And in that sense they ruled the Greeks. The Ottoman, the Orthodox Church ruled the Greeks within the Ottoman realm. So they had they had a sense of identity. They didn't have political independence. Hmm. And just going into religion, and you can't consider the history of art or the history of civilization without religion. But of course, kind of agnosticism or atheism is popular, but. I always like to respect people of faith and what it has given us culturally. I mean, can you imagine? I don't know, you know, the contemporary Greek person. What is the the role that religion plays in Greek life today? And what are your thoughts on that? Hmm. This is a complex question. The majority of Greeks go to church culturally and socially. So we go for weddings, uh, christenings, funerals, and once a year during Easter. And this is the case for most Greeks. However, these rituals are very strong. And the majority of Greeks would self-identify as Greek Orthodox, although, of course, there there are and there have always been Greeks who are Jewish, 
or Muslim or uh, Christian Catholic and a few Protestants. Protestants are relatively recent. But the Catholics, the Muslims and the Jews have been in the Greek world forever. But they are really you know, self-conscious minorities, of course, but they, they, they are very strong groups. But the majority of Greeks are Greek Orthodox. I wouldn't say that Greeks are particularly practicing, mm. but that is more of that has to do also with the relaxed attitude or to many aspects of life by the church. The Orthodox Church, for example, when it comes to to various mysteries, it doesn't have the very strict outlook of the Roman Catholic Church. Uh, when you confess, you don't confess to any priest, you confess to a specific priest with whom you actually talk more than, he's more of your therapist than your confessor. In that sense, it is a much more human scale relationship to our church, which makes it more familiar, closer to the people, and also a, a bit more approachable. This is not the general case, this is the best case. Right. <laughs> yes. Because there are other cases I'm not going to comment. But a good a Greek Orthodox priest is really a father and a therapist. And this makes the church quite approachable and loved to this day. But, you know, this is, you may say it's a personal opinion. I don't know what the statistics say out there. But Greeks tend to go to church a few times a year, yeah. most of us. And the sense of ritual, the sense of family oh, yes. is quite strong, even Very if strong. it's not. Yes. yes. And in many families, people still cross themselves before, they, you know, they, they say grace before they start eating. We never did it in my family. But my mother and my father were both quite religious. Yeah. So there are cultural sort of scales to how attached you are to this. And did, if I might just interject here, so does your uh, family's religious background, did that, how, how, what was your introduction into art, archaeology? I mean, did that spur an interest in the stories of the past? No, but as a Greek, you're exposed to archaeology and art yes. <laughs> from a very young age. It's hard to avoid. Yeah. Now, although Athens is not a particularly beautiful city and it's not like Paris where art is at every corner, Nevertheless, at school, when you go on holiday, you will come across an incredible archaeological site or a beautiful museum. Actually, my first memory, my first memory when I was five, was one of the rooms at the Benaki. The oh, room, this, that's this room. Yes. That was oh. my first memory because I came yes. here basically on first grade, you know, uh-huh. school. And I thought, how can someone live in something as beautiful as this? Yeah. So we are exposed to that. Yeah. Uh, inevitably, as I guess Italians are, or uh, Indians, or the Chinese, mm-hmm. because they live in so in countries with such deep culture, mm-hmm. and there's so much art. I don't. Uh, the church may have something to do because, of course, churches are quite beautifully decorated, but not all of them in very good taste. If you're lucky enough to live in a, a near a church with good painting, it is quite an striking experience. A good church is an art experience, yes. you know, because paintings start literally at floor level and they go all the way 
way up 15 meters to the dome. Yeah. And it's like a gallery of work. Some of it is well done, some of it isn't. So these Greek communities start developing an identity, a strong Greek identity, and they crave for freedom. During the Ottoman period, they are ruled by their priests, the church, and the church really gathers the biggest power in their hands. And as you can see, these are all church items dripping with gold and pearls. But at some point there, in, yes, there in the 1820s, in the early 1820s, a revolution breaks out. A revolution which is supported by many people from abroad. This is Lord Byron, you know, an English lord, who came and died here, fighting in Missolonghi, a city besieged by the Egyptian army sent by the Ottoman Sultan. And you see, the flags of the revolution, freedom or death, it reads here, Eleftheria Thanatos, and a lot of sacrifice, a couple of civil wars, and these Greek heroes, these sort of long-haired, mustachioed, skirt-wearing fighters, they manage amazingly to defeat the Ottoman army, and they managed to secure, with a little help of their Western friends, by 1830, independence for a country which is approximately half the size of today's Greece. So it's yeah. the southern part of Greece. Okay. Thessaly, Macedonia, and Thrace, and Tipiros were added later. Okay. So Greece went all the way to the middle. I mean, you know, if you cut the country across in the middle, that's was the original Greek state, and as it often happens. Kapodiste was a, a charismatic leader, worked for the Tsar, and he came to Greece, he tried to modernize the land, which was really in dire straits, and, um, well, but he was rather autocratic, and he was shot dead. And then uh, a Bavarian king came, Otto, the first king of Greece, in love with the country. Originally he was, again, very autocratic, but there was a revolution in the 1840s and we got a constitution. So Greece became a constitutional monarchy. And Otto was deposed and soon was followed by the second king, George I, who was Danish. Modern Greece has a tradition of either completely foreign or foreign educated leaders. And this is Venizelos. This is the Prime Minister who uh, gave his name to the airport, early 20th century Prime Minister, in insane costume, because of course he would never have worn that. He was from Crete, so he wore a completely different costume than this. But oh. This is a folk painting. Oh, I see, so he him. didn't commission that. No, no, no. No, no because maybe he wouldn't have chosen. <laughs> this is, these are folk paintings, and these people were both incredible. 
incredibly sophisticated Westerners. Yes. So, you know, they spoke many languages. I mean, the king was Danish, he wouldn't have commissioned that. Mm. Uh, and Venizelos was from Crete. So, if he had commissioned a portrait of himself in traditional dress, he would have been dressed like a Cretan man in dark blue or black, mm. you know, which was much more to the uh, point. And of course, you see him like a brutal slayer of women and children. And even but, animals. And even, uh, yes, because this is the Bulgarian tiger. Uh-huh. Because this is during the Balkan Wars when oh, Bulgaria was at some point, op- you know, an enemy of Greece. Okay. And anyway, I'm not going to touch on modern Greek history because it really is controversial. Uh-huh. Uh, so I'm going we, to stop. We could talk about some of the contemporary paintings. Yes. Though, yes. So these paintings have now been moved to different annex of the museum. So right. f- from here on, because this guide documents the museum as it opened in 2000, uh-huh. but in 2012, yeah. uh, the Gika Gallery, which is not far from here, it's towards the um, Grand Bretagne Hotel, mm-hmm. opened, and this has Greek modernism mm-hmm. in it. So things like this portrait, which... But you see the through line to the icons as well. Yes, exactly. Well done. Yes, immediately you spotted that. There is a 20th century artist who references icon painting. Mm -hmm. So there's a generation of Greeks who grew up in the 20s and started producing actually in the 20s and 30s, and they're called the 30s generation. Mm -hmm. And they started looking, I mean, up to then, modern Greek art was mostly Western-inspired, Munich, mm-hmm. Paris, etc. But they said, okay, we're Greeks, we have such a huge tradition, let's look back. Not just on the classical, mm-hmm. which the Europeans have already done, and the Americans just as well, mm-hmm. but the Byzantine mm-hmm. and the traditional. So here he is looking at an icon, Engonopoulos, um, a lovely painter. And this is Yamadopoulos, another Greek painter, much more modern. This is more looking into European tradition. Moralis, a great modern master who quickly goes from the expressionistic Mm. into the abstract. And he, he achieves geometric abstraction during the 50s. But just looking at that, there's a great face, and I'm just looking at the funerary portrait as exactly. well. Exactly. Fayum portraits were a main source of inspiration. Yeah, yeah name, you know, you've hit it on the head. Good, good, good. So, uh, thank you for this uh, wonderful tour of one of the Benaki buildings and I look forward to sharing and exploring your other collections and also sharing about your residency projects or educational initiatives. This is an educational initiative and what, how would you like to, as you think about the future and how technology, we're just so future focused now, and how technology is changing the way we interact with um, each other, with our imagination and forgetting the past. What would you like us to remember through our experience of museums? What changes would you like to, to take place to the educational, our current educational models? Hmm. Well, I mean, obviously the greatest revolution, technological revolution ever was the internet. And we have become inundated by it and completely stuck on it in recent years, especially through our phones. This has to be embraced. 
we have to embrace it. But we also have to uh, use it as a way to enrich ourselves as physical beings. I think we have been disembodied through this. We experience things not with our bodies, but with our thumbs and our eyes. So museums can give you this embodied experience. We, you can be somewhere, be physically, move up and down, front and back, left and right. You can see, but you can see in 3D. Not an illusionary 3D, but an actual 3D. And you can feel, you can smell. Let's not forsake travel. Let's not forsake saviors, savers. Let's not forsake taste and smell and actual vision. So by combining the access to information which the internet gives us and modern technology gives us with the ability to travel, which we actually have now much more than ever before, I think we can build a better humanity. We can realize our shared humanity and move forward in a more healthy way. Uh, healthy for everyone, healthy for the planet and healthy for us. So if we can somehow tone down the finger work and become more physical, more embodied, uh, that would be ideal. And museums can help in that. Well, thank, thank you so much, um, Dr. George McGuinness. It has really been a pleasure. Your collections are so enlightening and beautiful. I'll take a little bit more time to explore. Take your time. And thank you for adding your voice to the creative process. The Creative Process Podcast is supported by the Jan Michalski Foundation. The interview was conducted by Mia Funk with the participation of collaborating universities and students. Associate interview producer on this podcast was Pearson Brown. Digital media coordinator is Yu Yang Lee. Wintertime was composed by Nicholas Anadolis and was performed by the Athenian Trio. We hope you've enjoyed listening to this podcast. If you would like to get involved in our exhibitions, podcasts, or submit your own creative works, just drop us a line at team at creativeprocess.info.